Hello and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements and this is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Al Horner, film, music and pop culture journalist and the host of the Script Apart podcast. Hello, Al. Hey, Sam. That was a really dramatic and exciting opening. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of this podcast. So yeah, it's great to be here. So I discovered uh, Script Apart at the beginning of the lockdown and I've had such a good time listening to Script Apart. I wondered just maybe for the listeners at home, um, what is Script Apart and how did it start? Was it something you were always planning lockdown or no lockdown? (laughs) Yeah, it was something that um, me and my producer, Cam, we have been kind of talking and talking about it over various pizza and beer evenings uh, for like about 18 months as um, the both of us have been kind of on our own kind of stuttery journeys towards trying to screenwrite. So um, yeah, it's something that we had kind of already kind of been kicking around as an idea, but uh, we just didn't have the time and then lockdown happened and that was like the moment of stillness that allowed us to do it. In in terms of what it is, uh, yeah, it's a podcast in which screenwriters behind incredible movies revisit their initial screenplays for those movies talking about everything that changed from first draft to the big screen and in that process we tend to uncover alternative endings abandoned story threads different character arcs and all that good stuff and in in the process we kind of get a really good glimpse at how creativity and storytelling works it's been a lot of fun to do also quite weird interviewing these great filmmakers and great uh, screenwriters via zoom with oscars and baftas in the background of their lovely houses and I'm there in my bedroom with a big pile of laundry on the bed. So yeah, it's been strange, but it's been been loads of fun. I guess laundry is good to soak up the sound. Uh, a, a BAFTA would just bounce that sound around <laughs> the home studio. Did you have a list of people you wanted, you know, you were really keen to talk to and, and get this glimpse into their creative process? The idea kind of stemmed out of my kind of work as a, as a sort of film, I don't know, critic doesn't seem the right word, interviewer profiler i like i like to speak to and profile a lot of directors and screenwriters and all that kind of all those kind of people and um yeah the most interesting bit for me was always in kind of asking that recurring question of like you know what were the ideas you explored before you landed on this idea and this character's arc like those kind of uh films that almost were I always love that question i always love kind of hearing about the crazy things they explored before they landed on the thing which makes the film that we know and love today so yeah it was kind of like born out of that like that's one question I always tend to ask in an interview so I started to wonder what would a podcast be that was basically entirely that question it's a good I mean it's it's a great idea and it's one of those ideas you're like how has no one done this before (laughs) you know there's like a wealth (laughs) of stuff to talk about it leads into talking about the final you know thing of course but um but you know there's so many years you know often go into making a movie what your podcast talks about it's those years of you know tweaking and 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 trying things out and redrafting uh, which i think when it comes to the final film actually being made doesn't really get the airtime because there's so many other things to talk about you know when it's a brand new uh, release and, and you know, people are on the publicity trail what i didn't really appreciate when i went into it that i've started to notice is there's definitely a vulnerability uh, with these interviews and it's it's really great that so many screenwriters 
have come on the show and they've brought with them this first draft which is a first draft for a reason it's full of like ideas that ultimately didn't work for the finished thing so it's it's a podcast really about how success comes out of failure and i think there's like i I mean the quote's often attributed to ray bradbury i think it is but i don't actually know if it was him this idea that like um the best way to write your first novel is to write your first novel bury it in the back garden because it will be terrible and then sit down and write your first novel so the idea being that like uh yeah your first time is always going to be riddled it's just going to be this splurge of ideas that are kind of raw and unshaped you've got to get it all out on the page and then from there you can start to shape it into the thing you want it to be i I just find that really really fascinating and it's it's so nice that all these um great great storytellers have come on the show and opened themselves up to that that i don't know imperfection i suppose i guess it must be quite nostalgic for the guests but yeah like you say a bit bit scary uh talking about the things they did that weren't entirely perfect yeah i I think it's um it's a mix of scary for the people doing it but incredibly hopefully incredibly useful for the people listening because like i have been trying to learn screenwriting and trying to write my own screenplays and you sometimes look at a finished film and it's just second for second scene for scene perfect and you wonder how that genius fell out onto the page But then you actually speak to these people and no matter how many kind of big shiny statues they have in the background um, compared to my my laundry, they, uh, you know, they started off in the same place. And it wasn't like a case of just a moment of inspiration and then genius, like it's a splurge of ideas, first draft and then hard work kind of like chiseling that into into perfection. You you started the pod with Joe Cornish, who was actually a, a previous guest on 90 Minutes or Less. He was. He's actually one of the few directors we've had on the show who's made a movie under 90 minutes long. So like a, a double hero for the pod. Yeah, yeah. Joe was awesome. And he also very kindly just like decided to bung on to the end of the interview. Literally, I think it was like the final question. Like, yeah, guess what? I'm essentially making an Attack the Block 2. And that was our first episode that that news kind of got picked up everywhere. And that really kind of helped get the word out about the show. So uh, that was really kind of Joe to surprise us with that. So when you're when you're unwinding, uh, not on a clock, as you say, do you ever look at the uh, turn the DVD around and look at the film's runtime? <laughs> I do. Well, I actually I promise I'm not just saying this because of the podcast I'm currently on, but I love a 90 minute movie. It also sometimes means I can fit two films into into an evening. So, yeah, I love like a lean, mean kind of like no fat little 90 minute roller coaster ride. Those are the best words I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, you, you said you're quite interested in screenwriting. I do think, you know, maybe not 90 minutes per se, but, you know, a shorter film, I I think, does bring out the best in some screenplays. Uh, Common criticism, you know, definitely hear a lot with film critics is, uh, you know, it's too bloated, it was too long or or something. And and I I, I do think there's something in that. And I, I do think if you're aiming for like a shorter film, then, you know, you've got to be a bit tighter. You've got to, you know, do you actually need the scene? Does it add anything in? And uh, I really do admire those films that can take you on a complete journey in under 90 minutes, which is, I guess, why we end up doing this podcast. But also, after work, 90 minutes is just the best uh, best runtime. You can have your dinner, you can watch a film, and you can get to bed at a reasonable hour. Exactly. Yes. I mean, come on, <laughs> Sam, we're, you know, we're not getting any younger. We need to get to bed by a decent time, right? Yeah, you've got to get to bed, you know, 9.30, maybe 10 if I'm pushing it, if it's that's, a particularly that's good a film. Good, that's uh, a good gotta keep the... sleep you're getting there, Sam. <laughs> gotta keep that skin looking fresh. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the What Time Do You Go To Sleep At podcast. <laughs> 
So when we started talking about this show, um, the crucial question was, uh, you know, what movie would you like to pick, Al? How did you approach that task? I messaged you back in approximately 14 seconds to say, I think actually, I think I've got the DM here. I said specifically, Sam, I'm so sorry. Can we feel free to say no, but dot, 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 dot. Please let me come on to chat about Cloverfield. And then I think there's about six exclamation marks there. It's an excellent, that was an excellent reply. I sort of loved the sort of like, is it safe to say Cloverfield vibe of the response? <laughs> um, I, from my side, no one has suggested Cloverfield. It was an excellent choice. Well, yeah, I did. I mean, I, I don't mean to sound so kind of like apologetic about it, but as I kind of um, mentioned before we started recording, I find sometimes there's a bit of resistance, like a bit of critical resistance towards this film. And I understand because I, obviously for this this recording, I did go back and watch it and there are some things to probably caveat. Like it's a bit bro-y and the person behind the camera, I'm loath to call them the lead character, TJ Miller, has not gone on to cover himself in glory in the years since this film. I also, I also understand when people are like, you know, there's just, it's like a spectacle and not so much a film, not so much a story. But I just have like a crazy affinity towards this film and revisiting it for this podcast kind of gave me a, an opportunity to try and unpick why that is. Cloverfield from visionary producer J.J. Abrams, Lost and director Matt Reeves comes the worldwide sensation of non-stop terror and suspense that everyone is talking about. There you go. This is a very knowing synopsis. Like, this is relying on the person picking up the Blu-ray to have heard of the film and remember the sort of crazy 2008 release uh, yeah. of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's the shortest synopsis we've had on the podcast, but it does allude to some of the talent behind the camera, and maybe we should talk about that a little bit more now. It's a 2008 monster film i think as the plot synopsis sort of no it doesn't allude to it at all it just says non-stop terror um so 2008 <laughs> monster film directed by matt reeves i think it's his feature debut i believe um, so he's yeah. of course gone on to make a whole host of things including he's doing the batman right he is yeah name. yeah uh from cloverfield to batman um <laughs> produced by jj abrams so i think at this time was at probably the height of his powers lost was you know sensation he had done alias and he had done his first mission impossible mm. uh, and written by drew goddard who of course went on to i mean he's he's become one of the <laughs> probably most uh, famous screenwriters in in hollywood some amazing talent behind the camera and you mentioned uh, tj miller who i think has now been cancelled but uh, the film stars it's kind of a mix really of people who hadn't haven't really gone on to to do things or they sort of have that oh it's that person from that thing which i think is kind of like added to the like longevity of it it's it's fun to watch now because you can in the way that you did then these weren't like well-known actors you you weren't sort of distracted by the sideshow of okay there's tom cruise running away from the terrible monster because they're unknown actors you can you you buy them as kind of regular people and also they're, they're vulnerable you know the, the film follows an ensemble of, of people and you know you don't know who as is tradition i guess with a monster movie you know some people get eaten <laughs> and you don't know who's gonna die you don't know how long these characters are gonna last so i guess there's sort of a vulnerability there and the film quite early on shows you what's at stake just because these guys are the protagonist doesn't mean uh, that they're necessarily safe 
Uh, and I don't think, you know, if you cast a Tom Cruise, you probably were thinking he's probably going to be okay yeah. <laughs> um, in something like this. Doesn't often die on screen, that one. I guess the other sort of thing um, which people, you know, remember this film for, even if they don't remember the plot of the film itself, is the way it's filmed. This was a found footage uh, sort of style movie. And um, I think one of the reasons the runtime is what it is actually is because the whole film is supposed to be on a mini DV cassette tape. I think that's a sort of a framing device at the very beginning of the film before we see any action they there's some titles up on the screen which explain where the the tape has been found that's the i guess the reality we're going into with this movie yeah i think the framing is it's um there's like a watermark on the screen at the beginning that says property of the u.s department of defense or something like that so the inference is this is some sort of like it's literally found footage it's been found by the u.s military and is now some sort of evidence of uh, what went down that fateful day when essentially there was a godzilla attack by a creature that for legal reasons is not Godzilla. I do believe it is um it's exactly inspired by Godzilla, isn't it? I don't know how true it is, but the the story that was talked about a lot on the press trail was JJ Abrams was promoting Mission Impossible or, or something in Japan and him and his son, you know, suddenly took an interest in Godzilla movies. And that's cool. Like it's actually like a really, really great Godzilla film without being a Godzilla film. Like I think it hits all the marks right and it finds like a new uh a new space within that kind of like monster movie genre by like what could have been a um potentially to some people is a novelty this kind of like found footage handy cam thing um way of way of telling the story i think it's like a great godzilla film this is a really long running genre it's you know since the 1930s there have been you know, men in rubber suits stamping on miniature <laughs> cities, which is now replaced with CGI and, and visual effects. But, uh, you know, it's it's a good way, I think, to refresh this very long-standing genre by by actually just chami- changing the framing device entirely. By, you know, actually having the, the, the storytelling device being the camera that the protagonists are walking around with, it means that we only ever see things from their perspective and normally with a monster movie, you you know, you, it's normally an ensemble where you cut to people in mission control and the soldiers on the front line. And you might just have some lovely aerial shots of the monster stamping on the city uh, with no human characters at all. But uh, with this, we're always grounded by what these characters can see and what they do. We don't see the bigger picture. And I think it makes us as the audience, maybe we're a bit more active whilst watching it. We're kind of imagining what's happening off screen a lot. It's a lot more visceral for that like first person framing. The elephant in the room, I suppose, is it was it used that device, um, I, I feel, because it wanted to kind of leverage the look of the 9-11 attacks, which which were a few years earlier. And of course, that entire day and that entire like trauma was was chronicled by people on these kind of same handicaps. And I think at the time it divided a lot of people. Some people felt like it was like cheap exploitation for the fact that it kind of used this style, which was used so prevalently on that day to kind of yeah show a terrifying attack on New York. I think for, for a lot of other people, there was a degree of catharsis in it and it helped them kind of work out their feelings about that day, which is fitting because when I say that this is a great Godzilla movie without being a Godzilla movie, Godzilla was like a, um, from, from what I know about Godzilla, that was... That was a film that kind of was born out of Japan's kind of collective trauma at like Hiroshima. Godzilla was this enormous destructive creature awakened by nuclear devastation, right? So um, that was Japan's way of kind of dealing with a collective trauma and and soaking up some of like the terror 
experienced and, and dealing with it, confronting it on screen. Cloverfield does that and it does that for 9-11 and I don't know whether or not you think that falls on the side of like exploitation or, or, or something kind of like more artful I think is, 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 a, is a really subjective thing I think for me as someone who like admittedly only watched that whole day go go down from like you know my TV in my kitchen after school one day like it kind of leans on the other but I understand why people would feel it's exploitative there's no there's very very little story to Cloverfield there's like only like a real dusting of kind of like characters and and meaningful meaningful kind of emotions and arcs but where it does become where it does sort of feel a bit more profound is is that kind of political and aesthetic level where it does seem like they're trying to deal deal with something it's really evident in scenes like the bit where it's it's pretty early on a building comes down and everyone's like running away from these big clouds of asbestos and sort of dust where the, the building is collapsed and that's just one of the shots from from this film that feels kind of like it could have been ripped from TV footage on September 11th. It's it's obviously not accidental that this is a story told in New York. It's told in the way it is. And yeah, I guess that's kind of one of the one of the areas in which I feel like maybe this film does something that's like a little a little deeper than people give it credit for. Absolutely. I think a lot of um, you know, like genre trends and things like this you know fantasy movies are born out of real life uh, events or multiple real life events and 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 you can't help but feel like that must have been a conversation or at least inspired some of the things that we see in the film it's a great tool to sort of uh, invoke authenticity as well like we've seen very expensive Godzilla films. Um, I think of only a few years before this Roland Emmerich's Godzilla was also stomping around New York <laughs> You sort of mentioned this film's been with you for uh, you know over a decade. Did you first see this at the cinema? Yeah, it was. I remember I was um, a complete. I was completely suckered in by the marketing campaign. Abrams was coming right off the back of Lost, which had played around with kind of like building a world outside the show, a world online full of like these breadcrumb trail clues that you could explore, and you got the sense with all that sort of stuff, like you were getting a glimpse into what was to come on the show or what was to how things might resolve. So he took the same approach here and to the best of my recollection the film was the film was even kind of slow revealing what its title was for for the longest time it was just a date. I remember going to watch Transformers and seeing it uh, as as the trailer before and getting immensely excited counting down the days till it was released and following all these clues and to the point where like I remember being on these forums and the the level at which like these trailers for the film were, were dissected there was a point where like half of the internet thought that the film the monster in this film was going to be a giant lion because there's a moment in the trailer where someone says it's alive but it was kind of you know grainy and in the background and people thought it said it's a lion <laughs> yeah so i remember like kind of pouring over the details and kind of getting um yeah really kind of lost down the rabbit hole of all this kind of like digital marketing stuff um, including, I think they even set up MySpace profile pages for all of the characters, so you could get a sense of their uh, yeah attachments and interpersonal dynamics. So that was cool. I remember seeing it for the first time. I remember actually, I was uh, went to see it, and then Juno had come out the same weekend. Do you remember Juno? Oh yeah, yeah. Wow, that was a big one uh, for my uni days. I listened to that soundtrack far too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. So I was excited for both these films. So it was like, yeah, I'm going to go see them on like a double screening. I'll, I'll watch Cloverfield, then I'll go watch Juno. And I remember, yeah, watching Cloverfield, being kind of knocked 
just blown away by it and then going and sitting in my juno screening and <laughs> the it's such a loud film cloverfield i remember the combination of just being a little bit kind of uh mesmerized and you know it's, it's a real sensory attack cloverfield i remember just being a bit dazed by it but also it's so loud that i could still hear the monster roaring from my juno screening from like the room next door where they had started another screening of cloverfield so, <laughs> so yeah so my first experience of juno wasn't that great my first experience of cloverfield was very good excuse me sir sir excuse me listen we need your help our friend she's hurt she's trapped in her building right by here at columbus circle yeah that is not where you want to be right now do you guys know what it is out there do you know what that thing is no they ain't telling me whatever it is it's winning this is an independent movie. Well, this is a individual movie, not based on a franchise, made for a low budget. Like, yes, made by a big studio, but made with lots of untested feature film talent. I just think this is such a good way to make your film the film that you have to watch. Uh, you know, it's it's maybe a bit more hard work and you have to be a bit smarter with how you play things uh, than just, you know, releasing a very expensive film full of famous people. This is like Paramount's, you know, gamble and it kind of paid off. Financially, it was a success and it obviously spawned a couple of sequels, one of which is very good, one of which is very bad. It's not really spoken of much today. And as I mentioned, I do feel like it's kind of brushed over as like a little novelty from uh, from the, the noughties. But, but to me, yeah, I don't know, like at the time, as, as you said, it felt like an event film. And to me, it was a combination of like internet marketing, and also the CGI, like the effects in this, it was like, I hadn't really seen that level of authenticity in big CGI effects before in a film like this. And it was it was quite convincing. I think like the style of it, that handy cam style where you're not having to do big lavish shots where the camera holds on this thing. You're able to get away with little snatches of what this creature is. You're kind of able to make it like feel a lot more authentic. So I don't know, those two things combined with like just a really unapologetically simple roller coaster plot, all of those things coalesce to make this really exciting kind of pop popcorn film that, um, yeah, I still think of as being one of the kind of like defining examples of what I go to the cinema for sometimes. When I was rewatching this, I sort of forgot how much the film uh, emphasizes the human relationships at the start of it. Um, you know, there's a good 20 minutes of romance there. There's a bit of drama. Uh, there's a bit of just getting to know people at a party. And I guess some attempts at humor, which I don't know if they necessarily work anymore. I don't know if they worked at the time. Oh, the sort yeah. of the TJ Miller quips uh, from behind the camera. And I, I think what I liked about it is it <laughs> sort of felt like a real party um, a little bit. If, you know, one that you've maybe, you're not enjoying so much and you're maybe looking for a reason to leave. <laughs> and I think just as you're starting to feel that and you're a bit sick of TJ Miller, the monster sort of comes in and you're like, all right, here we go. But it's 20 minutes of the film of, a, of an 84 minute movie. It is. I remember at the time thinking that's a long time to to wait until something happens. But actually watching it again, I was kind of like, pretty impressed by the, the pacing of the film in general mm. but yeah this whole section it, i feel actually on, on rewatch it's long enough to kind of lull you into a bit of a like state of hypnosis of like you almost forget it's just long enough you almost forget that it's a monster movie and that you're expecting this thing so i think the shock of this like grand opening where like the monster finally attacks everyone kind of goes up on the roof 
<laughs> just debris is raining down where like something's exploded they go onto the street and then the statue of liberty's head just comes careening through the air down onto the onto the ground for me like watching it this time i was kind of like maybe it needed to be that long to to hit the way it does and on, on that sort of uh yeah sort of mention of, of pacing I actually kind of really appreciated this time how there's such a degree of, there's such a variety of types of tension and thrill in this like the uh, I, I didn't really remember from um yeah my sort of initial watches kind of back in the day all those kind of scenes where they're sort of forced underground and instead of it being the breakneck pace that it that it has been for the opening or like 40 minutes it then becomes a lot creepier and they're sort of pursued by these little mini clover creatures who these these bugs that chase them down in the uh in the dark subway from quite a simple uh concept they're able to actually sort of find a lot of a lot of ways to kind of like torment and and torture these characters and, and sort of put them up against peril lizzie kaplan's character i forget her name because none of these characters are really fleshed out that much when lizzie kaplan's character is is bit and she's fine for like 10 minutes and then she's she sort of explodes yeah just like the, the variety of ways of um them experiencing peril was something i'd forgotten i think it's actually pretty masterful hey i'm kobe and i'm helen and we are from flicks watcher podcast another podcast in the stripped media family we're a movie podcast that reviews films on netflix so if you've ever struggled to find a film on netflix and we're the podcast just for you each episode, we have guests from other podcasts, big and small, who choose the films and we rate them with our unique scoring system. So if you want to listen to Flixwatcher podcast, just type in Flixwatcher, that's F-L-I-X Watcher, into the very app that you're listening to this podcast on. Visit www.stripped.media to find more about our podcast and 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. A lot of the things that I remember from this film as being the things that I bump up against and now actually like now I revisit them I'm kind of okay with and I, I remember one of them was you know this sort of suspicion and I, I remember sort of like reading this in some of the reviews this idea that perhaps it's not like a smart film because the characters aren't smart and they don't do smart things and they don't say smart things as if like you know in a situation like a terrifying monster attack people like quipping left right and center is like actually going to happen there's a moment in the film which um i think i think there's i think there's a lot of attempts of um of humor in the film mostly through this stifler-esque tj miller character but there's a moment where they sort of like finally get to beth's apartment and they see that the building has kind of toppled into the building next to it and um he starts just yelling is that her apartment is that her apartment rob is that her apartment is that her apartment Rob, is that her apartment? And uh, I guess, yeah, at the time I was kind of like, well, that's just silly dialogue. But I've learned a lot about myself over the last couple of weeks, um, over the last couple of months in the pandemic. And yeah, sort of like now actually having experienced a degree of, uh, you know, sort of uh, panic and scary times myself. I can kind of, I mean, like, I've probably been in Tesco's at various points going like, <laughs> where's the flower? Where's the flower? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, actually, I would like to apologize to um, 
to Matt Reeves and co for ever doubting that that was authentic dialogue. Well, yeah, I mean, we don't know, you know, they're living a nightmare and I don't think there is a right way to act in that scenario. You know, we see crowds of people running and that doesn't really work out because the whole crowd gets destroyed um, you know, by the monster and, and they sort of splinter off into a small group and, and you know, everybody is sort of running at 11 at this point, you know, so I think you're just seeing their lived in kind of fear uh, I think it really helps sell it to the audience, you know, like if you're watching these four characters, which we are for most of the film, you know, go through these really, really extreme situations, we see the full gamut of experiences, you know, there's still some romance in there and, and attempts at humour, but there's also just pure blind terror. But we couldn't, as an audience, I don't think we could follow that for a full film, you know, we need we need a bit of a few different layers uh, there to keep us engaged. I think it made them all feel, you know, feel pretty lived in and, and human. Yeah, there's something nice as well about like i imagine when it came to writing the film the temptation is to kind of like have the characters do something heroic or manage to kind of like outwit you know there's nothing these characters can do i actually really like admire and buy into the futility that the characters have in in this film there's nothing they can do they can just scamper around and run and try and like buy themselves more time but there's no hero moment for um the lead character i think his name's rob there's nothing they can do to escape their fate well, they're just buying seconds really aren't they they're buying moments because this this creature is all consuming you know in, in their sort of situation and it's also quick what i like is the film is I guess nominally the, the length of a mini DV tape, but it doesn't, you know, it takes place over the course of one night. So I, I, I sort of thought that was quite refreshing as well, actually. And it does remind you of that because the, um, you know, as, as audiences, we get to see the time uh, on the on the cassette, which is really useful because I guess alongside all of the, the sort of action, there is that, there's sort of a, a series of flashbacks which are introduced as old footage on the tape which wasn't quite taped over somehow um i guess some glitches on the camera maybe yeah um which helps sell that central relationship the first time i watched this i really didn't care for but actually again it's a really economical way to introduce some backstory into the characters a lovely day out on coney island interspersed with running away from scary monsters yeah yeah it's like a nice juxtaposition that could have easily not been in the film but it it does just add something the contrast is kind of really jarring just on like a sensory level or like an aesthetic level but the um yeah just i i appreciate what they're trying to do with the characters there does the film's got so many kind of like twists on the monster genre and a lot of them are really showy and technical but i think actually trying to create this intimate relationship between the two central characters is another sort of flourish that they're trying to do, which again, I don't think the monster genre is necessarily known for. Um, you know, it's great human relationships. They're often, humans are often treated as like cannon fodder. And this is just trying to make our characters not be trad monster cannon fodder, I guess. I mean, it's super economical in how it does it. Everything is just alluded to because the format, they're not going to just kind of like explain everything because that wouldn't be authentic to someone walking around with a camera at a party but like you get sort of little hints dropped in that this rob guy obviously kind of hooked up with with beth uh, you know there was some some sort of um yeah toxic male behavior went on there and then obviously this thing happens and he decides to go back for her and there's this kind of like a real kind of like route one kind of story you know character 101 he doesn't want to kind of like walk away from her again he wants to go back and get her and you know it's it's not reinventing the wheel but like it does what it needs to do to kind of like 
make you want to follow along just just these characters trying to survive is probably not enough there's there's like a more human element going on there so yeah i think like it's it does enough and anything else would start to kind of like impede on what this film is which is a just a mad 85 minute roller coaster ride my name is robert hawkins it's uh, 6 42 a.m on saturday may 23rd Approximately seven hours ago, something attacked the city. I don't know what it is. Uh, if, if you found this tape, I mean, if you're watching this right now, then you probably know more about it than I do. If you were covering Cloverfield on Script Apart, what would be your big question? The question you'd love to know about sort of the, you know, developing the screenplay for the film? I'm always interested in, like, the initial kind of splurge of ideas. So often... When it comes to stuff like this, I tend to hear quite a lot from screenwriters that like your brain as a storyteller goes to big picture stuff first and then it's kind of like um, reined in to find like the smaller kind of uh, more economical idea. And uh, the Quiet Place episode is a good example of that where Beck and Woods, who um, are the two screenwriters who, who wrote that film, they obviously kind of came up with like a whole mythology for these creatures and they knew sort of like where they were from and what they were here for and all these kind of things which really interesting but when it came down to actually telling the story they wanted to tell it got in the way of the intimacy having this big backstory and having the, this this kind of big picture perspective so i guess like if i had these guys on script apart like the question i would want to ask is sort of like how much of that mythology was was mapped out right at the beginning some of it has obviously been explored in uh some of the sequels but I would love to know what their conversations were around what this, where this monster came from. How, how did it almost kind of pan out in terms of their approach to the monster? I think I'd also quite like to ask how that guy had such a mad apartment in Manhattan. It's the biggest apartment I've ever seen. That entire like scene at the beginning. I mean, he's moving to Tokyo. I don't think I'd ever leave that apartment apartment his like kitchen is bigger than my house something i do want to talk about towards the end of the film so this film because it's shot on a mini dv camera there is some music in the film there's lots of sounds at the party i, I picked out a gorillas track which i was also probably listening to in like 2008 but there's no score of course because the artifice of this is it's captured on uh, a mini dv camera and it's you know being run around new york city but of course it's a movie which has end credits and Michael Giacchino was brought in to do just one track, uh, a track called Raw, which is just designed to play over the end credits. And that track does so much for sort of making this film feel, it's already a big film, of course, but it feels so much bigger um, hearing a huge orchestral track. And there's lots of nods to, if people have seen the sort of 1950s Godzilla from Japan, there's lots of nods to the sound of, of, of those monster movies. I think it just brings in a bit of craft to actually, you know, we'll bring in a big composer, we'll have this epic score over the end credits. And I, I feel like that score really does, it makes you want to stay for the end credits, which is quite a feat. <laughs> yeah, it does. Actually, you, you saying that has reminded me of what it could have been, which have you ever, you've obviously seen the um, Godzilla with, uh, yeah, Ferris Bueller and that one, the soundtrack, Sam, you ever heard the soundtrack to that, to that film? It's crazy. It's like all kind of, well, there was Jamiroquai on there. This film could have ended in Jamiroquai. He's going deeper underground. He's going, yep, deeper <laughs> underground. There was also like Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin collaborating with Puff Daddy. 
you, this film could very easily the the monster movie tradition is to end in sort of like something bordering on new metal so could have <laughs> happened we should we should count ourselves lucky yeah okay. i mean it turns on its head doesn't it normally you would have a you know a michael giacchino type scoring the whole picture giving the, the the monster a huge sort of score and then we would leave the cinema to the dulcet tones of jamiroquai and um <laughs> and then they sort of flipped it on its head but you know even watching this at home it made we were sat there glued to the end credits i really love that track it's so good yeah it's pretty beautiful you're a big cloverfield fan but you're less infused by the sequels if I had known there was a Cloverfield sequel coming, which of course none of us did because they did a bit of a Beyonce with the sequel, 10 Cloverfield Lane was announced like I think a week before the film arrived. My fear would have been that they were going to explain all of that mythology that I mentioned before. This film is brilliant because it gives you just enough. It gives you everything you need to know and it doesn't get bogged down in sort of like... I mean, there's, there's a scene... In the final kind of Coney Island scene, if there's like a blink and you miss it thing where like an object is seen in the distance kind of falling and splashing into the sea. And the kind of like inference from that is that a satellite fell and sort of like awakened something in the ocean. Perfect. I don't need anything, any of that to be explained or like explored. At one point, the uh, there was some chat about like in the bridge scene in this film, uh, there's a moment where another person with a camera sort of like turns and faces tj miller's character and they kind of catch each other and there was some talk for a while about a cloverfield sequel that would show the same events of that night from another perspective which i mean let's face it yes i absolutely definitely would have been the first person in the queue to watch that film but also what would it add so when this film actually came out the second film i thought it did something really smart and i was really excited by the idea of that name cloverfield being kind of like a catch-all umbrella term for this like anthology of kind of creature feature sort of high suspense high concept movies um so yeah i loved the second one the third one sort of attempted to kind of like retroactively explain everything that was going on in the other two films and from what i understand it was not a cloverfield film it was a film that paramount didn't really know what to do with that wasn't working in like the first and second cuts so they kind of like rebadged it as a Cloverfield film and did some reshoots. So um, yeah, I was not a fan of that third film, but um, there's still talk of a, I think as, as recently as last year, J.J. Abrams was talking about doing like a proper Cloverfield sequel. Who knows? Wow. Can't see it happening. But um, again, I would definitely be, for all my grumbles, the first person in the queue to go see it. Cloverfield is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. What I can give you is a print of the movie and I'll give you, you know, a space to screen it. But how would you like to, you know, embellish the screening, make the screening a more immersive experience? Uh, no Jamiroquai, for a start. Uh, sorry, sorry, JK. <laughs> He's banned. He's banned. <laughs> yeah, we could have some slusho on, on, <laughs> on tap. I guess just volume is the main thing. Just set up as many speakers as possible because, like, I don't know whether it was some freak accident the screening i was in the first time i went to see it at the brighton odeon i think it was because i was at uni at the time whether they just like had it absolutely cranked but it honestly was i remember sitting there thinking this is the loudest film i've ever heard volume is obviously key so if we could make sure the uh the volumes cranked that'd be good those little things that fall from cloverfield and chase the guys down they're kind of like crappy maybe there could be some sort of like ling i don't know just like <laughs> crab 
<laughs> I don't know. Crab sandwiches or something, maybe like a seafood menu. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe, yeah, like some Japanese fusion seafood stuff. That could be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and someone um, is just standing there asking, Rob, is that the building? Is that the building, Rob? <laughs> it's in your ear the entire time, just following you around. I mean, it does sort of lend itself to that kind of immersive concept a little bit. You could pay some actors to, um, you know, walk around with a video camera and ask you annoying questions. <laughs> maybe, maybe the, um, you know, like before we all go into the cinema screen in this huge supermarket-sized foyer that's dressed to look like the New York Manhattan apartment <laughs> that Rob lives in. Maybe, you know, boss people are sort of mingling around, you know, there's, uh, we play gorillas, we'll have some, you know, some bottles of beer, we'll have a guy walking around asking annoying questions, there'll be little Japanese flags. So it's like, you know, we're all going to Japan with Rob until the film starts. And maybe, maybe what you do is actually at the end of the film, you know, during the movie, we get some people to just kind of completely redress the set and destroy the apartment as if the Cloverfield monster has just been through. Yeah, I think I think we're onto a winner there. We got a very immersive screening. It's going to be played to the max, like the louder, louder than loud. If I'm not coming out with tinnitus, I'm not happy. Okay. If you could invite one special guest to the screening, either to introduce it or, or maybe take part in a Q and A afterwards, who would you invite? I can't remember exactly which came out when, but I remember watching Bong Joon Ho's host around or the host i can't remember which it is around the same time and that is another sort of like deceptively smart creature feature there's nothing actually deceptively smart about it it's just a <laughs> smart awesome creature feature monster movie so uh, yeah i feel like i would use this as an excuse to invite bong along i mean i'd just invite bong anywhere because he's awesome yeah <laughs> i don't know i as i, I kind of been like stressing the entire time I feel like this is a film that isn't discussed, but I think it's one of the, to me, it's one of the definitive modern popcorn movies. I love it so much. And I would, I would like to not feel so apologetic when I talk about it anymore, because I really, really do think it's smarter and more sophisticated than it gets credit for. So Bong could help me out. Once I've got Bong's seal of approval, everyone's going to be like, oh yeah, I was always into Cloverfield. And I'll be like, yeah, were you? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'd love to have Bong along at this festival. So that's what we'll do. We'll do a do a, a, an introduction maybe with Bong Joon Ho. <laughs> okay. Well, this this is going to be an excellent screening, and I'm I'm glad to have our first sort of major monster movie in the festival. Thank you very much for bringing it along. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. This has been loads of fun. If people uh, want to see what you're up to online, where should they where should they go? I am. Um occasionally posting nonsense on twitter so um it's just al underscore horner h-o-r-n-e-r if you want to find me there but i'm in i'm in empire and the guardian and all those other places so yeah i'm around just find me on the internet and, and where should people find script apart oh you can get us on all good podcast apps we are script apart on twitter script apart on instagram uh, we also have a website that's scriptapart.com. you can just find us on apple Podcasts, spotify all those usual places thank you so much for talking to us al it's so nice to to sort of actually you know i've, I've listened to your voice through the pod but never spoken to you before and um, it <laughs> yeah. was so so nice to do thanks so much for having me sam it's uh it's awesome i love the show and um it's an honor to be part of the film festival Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. You can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. 
The show is edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostrick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. 